you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. In just a moment, we'll start reading at verse 5. We've come into a certain time of year, haven't we? And this time of year is doing us a favor when it leads certain questions to arise in our thinking. In particular, this month, we're going to think together about the question of the Incarnation. There's a lot of questions that may come to us in reference to God coming and taking on flesh and living among us. One of those questions, one of the most important ones, is a question that we're going to consider together over the next four weeks. Uh, we're preparing to celebrate that event, aren't we? The Incarnation. We're celebrating the second person of the triune God coming down and taking to himself a true human nature. Is that not profound? The occasion that we're about to mark in this special way. And yet we would all admit, I think, we're quite capable of managing to celebrate it without that profound reality even occurring to us if we are not deliberate. When we do think about it, Several questions could come to mind. We're only really going to be dealing with one of them this month. There could be the question of how. How can it be? How can Jesus be both God and man? What does it mean? It might be similar to the question of uh, what. What is it that we're seeing when we see Jesus Christ of Nazareth on the pages of the New Testament? Both of those questions, which are really the same question, that seemed to occupy a great amount of the intellectual efforts of the early church, and for good reason. And we can see the results of the church's wrestlings about that question in things like the Nicene Creed of 325 AD, in the Creed of the Council of Constantinople in 381, and then further in the Chalcedonian Creed of 451. Just think of all of the time represented there, uh, and the, the amount of thought and wrestling that goes into those statements. I imagine that we'll talk about some of the statements in those creeds at some points this month. But our question, the one that's before us this month, isn't exactly the what or the how question directly. Instead, it's the why question that we're going to ask. Why has God done this? Why did God become man? What did God will to accomplish that led to the incarnation? Oftentimes, and it's, it's okay, oftentimes our answers to that question are general. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. But we ought not miss opportunities like these, natural opportunities that arise for us to go deeper and to get more specific. What did God accomplish that required the incarnation? After all, God can do anything. Can't he? Are we saying that there are things God willed to accomplish that demanded that the Son, the eternal Son, take on flesh? This is the question that we explore this month. And I think that we generally recognize that the God we worship, the God who holds all of history in his hands, the God who directs all things to his intended end, I think we recognize this morning that 
that God is rarely, if ever, doing one thing at a time as he acts. And we'll see this month that that's clearly the case as it comes to the incarnation. There is more than one answer to the question. Why was the incarnation necessary? In fact, this month we'll deal with four answers to that question. And they come to us very conveniently, one at a time, as we walk through most of Hebrews chapter 2. That's what we'll do this month. This morning we'll take our first answer to this question from Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 9. It may be the one of the four answers that we think about the least. As we typically approach this season and think these things. Here's the answer that we're going to find this morning from God's word. It is this. It's just that God became man in order to fulfill God's original intention for mankind. Let's read what is written in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Notice that when we come to verse 6, he is going to be quoting from the Old Testament. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We come at these verses this morning under two main points, two very unevenly balanced points. The first point comes from verses 5 to 8, and it is this. We see there that the Son's work aligns with God's original intention for humanity. Secondly, secondly then, we'll see in verse 9 that the Son's work consummates God's original intention for mankind. The son's work aligns with his original intention, and the son's work consummates his original intention. First, look with me at verse 5. As we begin to hear from what our author is telling us, and you'll notice throughout this time, as we're looking at the book of Hebrews, I'll have to keep referring to our author or the author. And that's because we do not know for certain who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's plenty of speculation, but it puts us in this place where we'll have to keep saying the word author. But that's why I'll be doing that. But look at what we see from verse 5 to verse 8. Begin with me at verse 5. He writes this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. You hear how the way that that ends, he's very helpfully pointing out to us here that he's not beginning an altogether new subject with verse 5, is he? We have to hear what he's telling us 
in line with the flow of the book of Hebrews. And what we find as we look back is that the entire time here, since he has begun to write, it has been statement after statement directly comparing two things. Comparing angels to what he's calling the Son. This person he's referring to by this designation, the Son. It's over and over a comparison between angels and the Son. So in chapter 1, look at the middle of verse 3. His Son sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You hear that comparison? And then you see a series of statements that keep beginning in particular ways. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say? And then he gives a quote, right? And what's the implication? This is something he's saying of the Son, but not to angels. See how verses 7 and 8 each begin. Verse 7, of the angels, he says. And then verse 8, but of the Son, he says. Here's this comparison. Verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said? This is what we've been seeing him do. And when you hear chapter 2, verse 5, in line with all those things that have just been said, we see that we're intended to immediately recognize this comparison in play, that what was, quote, not subjected to angels was subjected to the Son. That's the point that he's giving us in verse 5. It's yet another way that the Son is superior to angels. The whole world, as it reaches its God-ordained end, will bow in subjection to this Son. Not to angels, but to the Son. Now, hearing verse 5 in that way is how we begin to move meaningly, meaningfully toward our particular purpose this morning of the incarnation that we're considering. What does the author here point to as he's demonstrating that fact for us? As he's proving the fact of the subjection of the world to the Son. This is what he does in verses 6 to 8. He starts with this great opening. It has been testified somewhere. Isn't that a great way for him to open up an Old Testament quotation? I actually kind of love that. He can pull from his memory perfectly as he's writing the words of what we know to be Psalm chapter 8. But he either doesn't remember the author, and that, if you know the book of Psalms, you know that it's a composition of a number of Psalms written by several different authors. As he's writing, he either doesn't think to record the name of the author, or he doesn't care to mention the name of the author, which is strangely helpful to us as a reminder, and providentially in a book whose author is unknown to us. Isn't that interesting? But it, it, it does remind me that in the end, the identity of the human author, as we're confronted with Scripture, doesn't really matter. If God has inspired it and has handed it down to us in his word, by his spirit, the human author really is irrelevant in that way. Now, in actuality, we know that he's pointing to David's words from Psalm 8. Here in verse 6, he says, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? See, he begins by reminding us of a particular point that David made. And what we find is it's a point that David made not about his son in this direct way, 
not about explicitly a coming future son of David even, but it's a point most directly made about God's having created mankind for a position of incredible glory and authority within his creation. Turn back with me to Psalm 8 here. Let's hear this Psalm of David. It's short. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field. I didn't know a guitar could do that just spontaneously. Picking up at verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is the reality that David is thinking about and marveling at here? For many of us, our ears immediately perk up when verse 4 mentions the phrase, the Son of Man, because we recognize that as a title that Christ loved to take to himself and did often. But we have to remember that Son of Man is itself just another way to say man, mankind. It's used pervasively in the Old Testament in just that way. God refers to Ezekiel in the book of Ezekiel as Son of Man more than 80 times in that book. And it's what's happening here in Psalm 8:4. You have a clear textbook Hebrew parallelism in place. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? When you see that kind of a parallel structure, what's happening is the writer is simply referring to one thing in two different ways. This is one of the, the most basic ways they engaged in poetry in Hebrew literature. So the direct statement, the immediate statement David is making is about the lofty place in creation that God has given to his image bearers, to mankind. And it's not hard to see either, is it? The way that his descriptions are pointing at, in fact, what was said about Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 1. Blake just read that for us again before we began here. But notice the clear reference. You have Psalm 8, 6 here. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And then what does he describe? Down to sheep, oxen, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. When Genesis 1, 28, God says, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. David's point here that he marvels at and worships God for has to do with a particular honor God has given 
to his image bearers. And what we have to notice this morning is that that is what the book of Hebrews references as it is pointing out who the world to come is going to be subjected to. As he announces the complete subjection of the world as it will be to the Son, he is ascribing to him an outcome that God has intended for mankind from the beginning. And he points to that as he's describing what God has done through Jesus Christ. So what we're doing here is this. In order to get to the author's point here, and you can come back to Hebrews chapter 2 if you haven't already. In order to get to the, the author's point, we're not rushing right to the person of Jesus, who we will find named in verse 9 as we walk through this text. We're letting the author speak. We're letting him lead us to Jesus in the way that God's word has chosen to do so. Now back in Hebrews 2, look again at verse 8. He finishes the quote of Psalm chapter 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then in that same verse 8, it continues. Now here's where I have to ask you to do some work. For me, okay? You don't have to write this in your Bible necessarily, but write it in your mind. Could you please mentally think of verse 8 as having three parts? Could you look at that verse and assign 8a, 8b, and 8c? I have to ask you to do that because I need to refer to 8b and to 8c, and I need you to know what I'm talking about, right? So 8a is the end of the reference to the Psalms. Please think of the next sentence there as 8b. Now, when putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And then finally, if I might dare to ask, please think of the next sentence as 8c. Okay? At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Okay, so we have it in place. Right? Um, notice that in 8b, he's finished quoting the Old Testament. And he has returned to talking about the Son. So he says in 8b, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. It's the same word used twice. That's not represented well in the ESV that I just read. You have, uh, you have a word used and then you have the negation of that word used. Just like, in fact, it, literally, it's the same word with the letter A tacked on the beginning of it. It's like the difference between typical and atypical. That's what he says here. He says, everything was put in subjection to him. Nothing was left unsubjected to him. Everything has been put in subjection to him. It's a statement of affirmation that this son that he's been telling us about in his supremacy throughout the, ch the first chapter and now coming into the second. This is a statement of affirmation that this son has in fact had all things put in subjection to him. It's a historical event. It had not happened on a particular day in history and it had happened the day after it took place and whose happening is declared to us. Remember with me how God's word has told us about that day. That moment, how it was prophesied in the Old Testament, and how it was declared to be accomplished in the New. 
We are told of a vision of this that God gave to Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel 7, beginning at verse 13, says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. To Daniel is shown a day in which one like a son of man, what's that mean? One in human form. Here's the ancient of days, and he watches as a man is brought before him. A day is shown to Daniel in which one such as this would come and be presented before the ancient days, and would be given dominion, would be given a kingdom that would never come to an end, and all of the authority that is encompassed in that. We see that in Daniel 7. And then at the very end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, 18, we hear this. Jesus came to them, his disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is declaring that that day of Daniel 7 has come. Now, that's glorious, but think of what that means. That means that there is a sense, a very real sense in which, on a day and time, Jesus of Nazareth did not possess all authority in heaven and on earth in the way that's being described. And when the next day, he did. Something had been given to Jesus that he is declaring. How can we possibly say such a thing? We can say it because we are talking about a distinctly incarnational reality. That's why we can say it. It's only by understanding what we're seeing here that the language of Scripture makes any sense. When it says, for example, in Hebrews 1, 4, that this Son has, quote, become superior to angels and has inherited a name more excellent than theirs. In what way was the Son ever inferior to angels? We are being spoken to about the realities of the Incarnation. There was an inferiority in the Hebrews 2.7 sense. And it's only by virtue of His accomplishing the mission the Father sent Him on that these things have changed. Many things are happening as the eternal second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son, to use the language below our text, Hebrews 2.14, partakes of flesh and blood. Many things are happening as he partakes of flesh and blood, as he comes incarnate. But one of the things that's happening is that in Jesus Christ, and you notice perhaps that verse 9, as it finally refers to this Son by name, calls him Jesus. It calls him by his earthly name, the name that Mary gave to him at his birth. One of the things that's happening as this eternal son takes on flesh in the incarnation is that in Christ Jesus, God's original intention for mankind 
is finally restored as a new covenant head for a new humanity is tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He is tempted as he walks the earth by Satan, as Adam was, our first federal head. Only Jesus resists. Jesus has the word of God twisted against him, as Adam did, and does not remain silent as Adam did, as he stood beside Eve. All of the ways in which we have so needed a king to represent us and to succeed, to be faithful, which we have not had. Christ Jesus comes in the flesh and he gives to his people. Now this is all then bringing us to, I said the second point was verse 9, but that's because I hadn't given you the language of 8a, 8b, and 8c. Okay? So this brings us finally to 8c and to verse 9. Having thought about and identified what the purpose is for mankind that he's revealed to us, and having seen that Jesus' work aligns with that purpose, secondly, this morning, we are told that he has achieved that purpose. And in fact, we're told how it is that Jesus Christ of Nazareth achieved such a thing. At 8C, our author acknowledges what we all observe just by looking around us. I do not see everything in subjection to him. Do you? Have you lived a life in a world where all things are in subjection to our Lord Jesus Christ this week? Notice what he says, at present, literally, but now, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That word yet is important, isn't it? Just another little reminder that a day is coming in which that reality that seems so permanent, so unchangeable, will one day, in the blink of an eye, change. For what age are you living for now? The age you've lived in, the age which is passing away, or the one which will come and which will endure forever. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We see that. But what else do we see? Verse 9, we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now you can tell that the idea he has here in verses 8 and 9 of seeing and not yet seeing, what he's really talking about is not so much what is literally seen now as he's writing to his audience. They are not seeing Christ physically. This is a way of differentiating between realities that exist right now and that do not yet exist right now. Everything is not yet in subjection to him. But this much is true. Now, as he writes this, and now as I'm speaking to you, this much is true. This Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, this Jesus has now been crowned with glory and honor. Our destiny is seen fulfilled in that statement. 
there is a member of the human race that has been crowned with glory and honor, that sits at the seat of authority now in the heavens. God's intention for his image-bearing race, the holy calling that we've been created for, its coronation day is 2,000 years old and running as I speak to you today. This forever reign in which a member of the human race is seated on the throne of God has begun already. And we're living in that time. And yet, in the wisdom of his plan, the experience of that reign is not yet fully consummated. This is what is meant when you'll sometimes hear the phrase thrown around, inaugurated eschatology. This is the already and not yet reality that's often described in the Bible. Our author acknowledges that reality. Everything has not yet fallen in subjection to him. But Christ Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. Now here then is the last thing, what verse 9 gives to us. It's the end of verse 9 that brings to us an answer to the how question. Jesus has achieved this. He's accomplished this. He has achieved the purpose for which mankind has been created. How was this achievement accomplished? We read in verse 9 that he received this crown, quote, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now what that's most directly speaking to are realities of atonement and substitution. And that will be our subject for next week. We have to wait to then to look closer at some of those realities. But what we gain from verse 9 this morning in the context we're thinking about is that whereas Adam's vacating of the kingly office cast us into death, Jesus' willing suffering of death has now led to the crown, again donning the head of man. It is only as the risen Christ born of Mary, crucified, dead, buried, raised bodily on the third day, having conquered death. It's only through that tremendous incarnational journey that the will of God seen on the day of our creation is finally met with an amen. It has been restored. I would have us close this morning by thinking about some of the questions that Paul opens 1 Corinthians 6 with. These are a couple of profound questions. Here's the first one. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And here's the second one. Do you not know that you will judge angels? This is what Paul asked the Corinthians to start that chapter. Those statements, those questions, Assume that his readers have a certain understanding about God's intentions for his people. They assume a certain understanding that a future role awaits God's people that is characterized by rule. He uses the word judge there, judging the world, judging angels. The Hebrew mentality behind the word judge includes more than just issuing judicial rulings. It's very much about reigning and ruling in a broad way. 
This is the reality that Paul brings up to them and asks them. And in that context, it goes like this. Are you not competent to, to rule yourselves and judge matters among yourselves? Don't you know what God's intention is? Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Don't you know that you will judge angels? Now, obviously, he's not speaking in those senses that are uniquely reserved for Christ as the judge of the world, the one to whom all will answer. What he's referring to is the kind of notion that I assume he got from Daniel 7.22 and places like it. Daniel 7.22 speaks of a day when, quote, Judgment is given for the saints of the Most High, and the time comes when the saints possessed the kingdom. The picture that we're given in the Bible is of a future in which a redeemed humanity has been restored to its proper place. A redeemed humanity has heard the words of Matthew 25, 23. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. This is the kind of picture that we're given. And what gives life and inevitability to that picture is that a king has been given to the children of God. A king in whom this right order of things has been restored. We read the famous description in Isaiah 9, beginning at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We breathe a tremendous sigh of relief and we shout shouts of praise to our God who has brought this to pass in the coming of his Son in the Incarnation. As we continue in the month, we'll continue to see more answers to this question. This is not the only answer to the question. Why has God become man? But it is a picture that we're given so that we might praise him for it and rest in hope at what has been finished on our behalf. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do thank you. There are so many mysteries that you have yet not revealed to us. And yet, Lord, you have given us everything that we need to know to walk humbly before you in complete dependency and faith in your wisdom, in your goodness, and in your power. God, we do thank you every time we come to these places in your word where you give us great assurances of the way you have made for your people. Sinners, though we continue to be, because of what you have done in bringing us to yourself, by faith in your Son alone. Oh God, what a blessed hope we have. But we acknowledge today that every joy, every hope, every confidence that we have is ours only in Christ Jesus, who has died in the place of his people and who now sits enthroned, having conquered death for all those who belong to him. Help us today 
Help us to find our rest, not in the pleasures of this world, but only in the satisfaction of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Just consider how this morning's focus from Hebrews 2 impacts the picture of our gathering together at the Lord's table. We now shift to our communion service. We're well accustomed to seeing this as God gathering his children to feast together at his table. It's a picture of Christ's provision for us, isn't it? And, and it pictures the reality that it is union with Christ that we have in common as we sit together in this room. That's what makes us one, this family gathering. But this morning, we might have another element that we can see more clearly, one that we've not given voice to every time that we share in communion together. It is that the table that we are made to sit at, if we are adopted into this family, the table that we're brought together in, fellowship at, is a royal table. We are gathered to the table of our king. In Revelation chapter 20, the children of God who die in Christ, it says, live and reign with him. It may be in God's providence that such a picture leads you to consider anew this morning the height of the family name that you have been given if you have been brought through adoption into the very family of God. It's very well that we sing now words like we're about to sing. Emmanuel, within us dwelling, make us what thou wouldst have us be.